Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. The Bible is our authority and every message delivered proclaims the truth in a way that is relevant and practical for daily life. At Vail Christian, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Take your Bible out and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 4. We've been here in this gospel, and kind of that bumper helps us transition to some thinking here. John has all kinds of things that he is writing in um, and putting things in order, featuring Jesus in a certain way on purpose. It's amazing how he does it. The gospel of John is just rich with lessons. Um, you don't have to like read through it and then go, oh, what are the lessons? They just keep, they just fall out. Of, of the scripture as you just unpack the truth. And so we took about four weeks um, to go through just one story because the woman at the well is such a, an unbelievable rich story that I think applies to us, all kinds of lessons there. And as we end up chapter four, there are more. And it's connected to that story, um, which is amazing to me. So let's look at chapter 4 and start at verse 43. If you need a Bible, there's one under the seat that is black, that black chair. There's one in there you can pull out or pull it up on your phone. Let's read it together and then um, I'll unpack it. There's some kind of some strange things um, that are being said here. So see if you can point those out and I'll I'll, I'll point them out a little bit later. Start at verse 43. After two days, he he departed from there to Galilee. So he's been in this little town, Sakar, right? With this woman. It's in Samaria, that whole thing. He's been there and it's been really successful, right? So after two days, he departs. Now then, when you see parentheses in the verses, that's John kind of doing, he's got a little commentary explaining some things. That's why it's in parentheses there. So this is John, he says in verse 44, for Jesus himself has testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That sounds kind of strange. We'll get to what that's all about. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all the things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Here comes some more commentary for they themselves had gone to the feast. So uh, we've already visited that story. So he's just kind of reminding you about something that we've already looked at. All right, we'll get to that. Verse 46, now he came again to Canaan, Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine, all right? In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. And when he heard that Jesus had come back from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son who was about to die. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see the signs and wonders, you'll never believe In verse 49, sir, the official said to him, come down before my child dies. Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. Now, I don't know if I can do it justice with attitude and tone in all those things being said, but there are some attitude, some tone, and some compassion, some mercy, some power, all kinds of stuff just happened in there, and I probably didn't do it justice the way I read it. But let's just keep going. Verse 51. 
While he was on his way down, his slave met him and he told him that his son was going to live. So he asked them the time when his condition began to improve and they told him, well, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that it was the very time that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed along with his entire household. And Jesus did this as a second miraculous sign when he returned from Judea to Galilee. Now, there's cool stuff in here. A little bit of strange stuff. John's doing some stuff. Jesus is doing stuff. John's featuring it. So let me just start out. Let's, let's just, let me, let me say what, let me describe to you what this has to do with you and I first. And then through that lens, we'll, we'll unpack some things, okay? So what does this have to do with me? Well, the main thing John's doing is showing us the greatness of Christ by this astonishing miracle. Because it's astonishing. What? I mean, yeah, think about it. I'll get to it. But the boy that's healed, he's 15 miles from here. Jesus doesn't go. He just says, go home, he's healed. 15 miles away. That's astonishing. So John's showing us the greatness of Christ with this, no doubt. That's the kind of the main feature of the whole thing. But there's all kinds of lessons surrounding it. John does this uh, by showing us the kind of things that keep people from honoring Christ. So that's what John's after. There are things that keep us from honoring Christ, things that get in the way, things that blind us, things that um, just become stuff that keeps us from truly seeing Jesus the way he is. John's after that. He's, he wants to feature that. So what can keep us from seeing Jesus? Number one, he's going to point out that pride of attachment to someone special. Pride of attachment to someone special. Um, what else can keep us from seeing Jesus? A sense of entitlement. Um, what can keep us from seeing Jesus? Over familiarity with Jesus. All these things. So pride, a sense of entitlement. Entitlement's huge in our culture. It's huge for you and I, whether you think it or not. Over familiarity with Jesus. I mean, the resources that are out there to explain who Jesus is, the videos, the stuff, the things, all that stuff, I think can get in the way sometimes. So much so, it keeps us from seeing Jesus sometimes. I mean, we... We, we become so familiar, so full of pride. So all these things kind of block uh, or shadow, right, some things. And we, we don't see Jesus. And John's pointing that out because there's a miracle here that tells, uh, tells us that Jesus is gracious. That's what he wants to do. That's what this has to do with you and I. There's a miracle here that is all about grace. And we're going to unpack that. That's amazing, I think, in this guy, the, the royal um, officer, right? And the miracle tells us that Jesus is powerful. So the first thing that I want to do is point out some strange things. And I kind of already did a little bit of it, but they need to be explained. In verse 43, uh, follow along with me. Jesus has just spent two days in Samaria, all right? These are people, again, that the Jews didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about because these people are kind of warping the way they worship, where they worship, who they marry and who they mingle with and this whole thing. And man, so the Jews and the Samaritans don't like each other. 
There's racial tension. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And it's still going on all over that area, right? But Jesus walks right through the middle of this anyway. And now oh, we went through that whole story and he's leaving for Galilee. So the time in Samaria was really successful. So you need to remember, these are people that actually shouldn't really be coming to Jesus because they don't really believe in all this stuff. But they do. This whole town does, all right? So it appears the whole town of uh, Sikar is turning to Jesus as Messiah, the Savior of the world. The focus there is not on his miracle working power. It's not that, but it's on his word. So we've heard him for ourselves is what they say, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, right? Verse 42, right? This is a better response than anything Jesus has gotten among his own Jewish people. His own people. I think it's kind of strange, right? Galilee is where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, right? About 10 miles north of Nazareth was Canaan, where he turned water into wine back in chapter 2. About 15 miles east from Canaan is Capernaum, where the official with a sick boy in this story, that's where he lives, so Galilee is Jesus' hometown, his homeland, his, his country, right? In a special way, right? He's leaving Samaria, which is not his people, his hometown, his, you know, and uh, homeland. And he's turning now to his own, his old stomping grounds, right? Do you ever go home? Have you been gone? You know, I grew up in Prescott. Once in a while I go home and I'm like, man. I love this place. It's unrecognizable. Everybody from California moved in there. Turned my hometown into like, what happened? Everybody used to know me. I feel like a foreigner. Nothing's the same, right? It's kind of a weird experience. You go back to your own stomping grounds. Um. So anyway, this is what's going on with Jesus. Look at verse 43. After two days, he departed there to Galilee, verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So John's saying something here that Jesus intentionally goes where he is less honored than in Samaria. That's weird. He's coming to his own people knowing that they don't understand him and don't honor him for who he is. You know, when I go back, though, to Prescott and I connect with people that I grew up with, oh, my gosh, I'm right back there to that person that I was in high school. <laughs> I am not that person, but that's all we got to connect over. That's what they're familiar with. That's what they remember, just weird things like that. And, and, and it's so kind of shallow, but that's what they're familiar with. Okay, so there's a little bit of this going on, right? So um, this is not new. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it sets the stage for the strategy that John kind of is unfolding here. He came to what was his own or who was his own, but his own people didn't receive him. That's John chapter 1. So verse 44 seems strange to us. Go to a place because they'll probably misunderstand you and reject you, but it's not strange to Jesus 
It was a part of the plan from the beginning. He's going here intentionally. He intends to keep offering himself to his own people. And overall, they're not going to receive him. And in the end, they're going to kill him, which is why he came that. But he's going to keep going, going back to these folks, right? What's happening here, there is a welcoming without welcoming. Now, I know that sounds funny, but I, I think you know what I mean, right? Verse 44 connects to what follows. He goes to Galilee to his own people because he expects no honor there in the country. Now, verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Because he'd seen all the things that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves had gone to the feast. So that's not what we expect. This is kind of weird. John puts this together and points this out on, po- on purpose. They're supposed to dishonor him, according to verse 44. How can John say, for Jesus himself had testified a prophet has no honor in his own country, his own hometown. And then in verse 45, so they welcomed him. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's because there's a welcoming without a welcoming. The answer is welcome. The reception is not what it looks like on the outside. There's a kind of welcoming. Jesus has no true honor for, you know, or respect for or belief in, right? It's just an interest in his signs and wonders. That's what's going on. So, There is a believing without believing. A believing without believing. This happens all the time in our culture, a believing without believing. I mean, you don't think it does, but it does. People love the idea of who Jesus is and what he can do and all those kinds of things. So there's a believing without a believing. I mean, actually, I've talked to people about this before when we talk about faith and trust and true belief and all these things. And it sounds a little offensive to kind of get into it, but it, have you ever considered this? I'm not even, uh, I, I can get away with it a little bit because of my role and my position when we're talking about things like this. But I, I would say something like this. Hey, you know, I, I, I know you're saying you believe. So maybe you can help me understand. I'm not being snarky or even sarcastic, but the devil himself actually believes in Jesus. So what's the difference between your belief and his belief? Right? There's got to be, there's a different kind of belief. So tell me about your belief. All right. Now that can put people on their heels if you're not careful, but Jesus gets away with it here, right? You got to be full of mercy and compassion. Watch what he does here. This believing without believing. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25 first. John chapter 2, just back up a little bit. This is amazing. It says, now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover, many people who believed in his name because they uh, believed in his name because they saw the miraculous signs he was doing. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He didn't trust them. Because he knew all people. He knew what's going on inside. He knows everything. He can see in the inside. He didn't need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. They believed, John says. But this was not a kind of faith that Jesus accepted. It was simply an excitement about his miracles and the stuff he could do. 
not the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Remember the people in Sakaar, they come back and the, the woman said all, all these things and they're like, what? That sounds, uh, and, they, and they start believing. And then they hear it for themselves and they, and they, they call him, we believe you're the Savior of the world. That's who you are. We believe because of your word, right? It takes it to a whole different place. So these people aren't believing like that. They saw him in a political eschatological. I can actually say it. Just not in front of you. A figure like that. And their concept of Messiah wasn't the same as Jesus's definition of Messiah, right? So not even his own brothers believed him, by the way. This is another illustration, John chapter 7. Flip over to John chapter 7 watch this. This is awesome. <laughs> How about your family? What do they think about you? What do they believe about you? What do they know about you? What goes on with your family? You know, I've been a pastor a long time, but my family grew up with me, and so they didn't get to see a whole lot of that firsthand. They live all on the East Coast, you know, where you, there's no mountains and a lot of humidity and all that kind of stuff. And I live out here, so we connect through FaceTime and Skype and everything else, right? And we get together, but they only get to see a little bit of here and there. So look at verse 3, chapter 7. So Jesus' brothers advised them, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see your miracles that you're performing. For no one who seeks to make a, a reputation for himself does anything in secret. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then John says, for not even his own brothers believed him. So what did they believe? They believe he could do miracles because they grew up, you know, and they, 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 they know him, right? And they were eager for him to show these miracles to the world. But John says in verse 5, not even his own brothers believe in him. Oh, they think they're believing in him, right? Just like the people in Galilee think they're welcoming Jesus. But they don't understand him. They don't have true eyes to see him. Something has not happened. And that's what we're seeing in John chapter 4. They welcomed him, yes, but then it says they had seen all these things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves have gone to the feast. They welcomed him because they had seen the works of power in Jerusalem. Jesus is coming to these people knowing this is their attitude anyway. He's coming to them anyway. He knows they don't believe and he's engaging anyway. You got anybody in your life like that who just kind of know they don't believe, but you want to engage with them anyway. It's kind of hard. I think you got to swallow a lot of pride sometimes. Jesus is coming to these people knowing that this is their attitude. And when John mentions Jesus is coming to Canaan, verse 46, he draws our attention to the fact that this is the place he had done his first sign in Galilee by turning water into wine. You don't think that gets around? If you can turn water into alcohol, wine. It's not exactly the same kind of wine we drink, but it's pretty good. You could get drunk on it, and that kind of thing's going to get around. This guy could turn water into wine. I used to have been there. <laughs> there was a lot of it, right? Can you imagine how that, that would just like, I mean, go to any wedding, and that happens. 
You don't think that's going to get around? So they know. People are talking. They saw this stuff. And man, he is drawing a crowd, right? Enter the royal official. Okay, here it comes, right? You might think John's kind of turning our attention away from all this. From the sign-seeking attitude and that whole thing with the Galileans. And he tells us now that the, uh, this royal official shows up at the end of verse 46. So it it's, doesn't happen right away. In fact, he's going to make his strongest indictment of the Galileans right here. He's not changing the subject. Watch this. Look at verse 46. This is awesome. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. He heard that Jesus had come back from Judea. He went to him and he begged him to come down and heal his son who was about to die. So Jesus says to him, I wish I could kind of sound a little snarky and a little like matter of fact and a little like, like there's no compassion in it. Because that's kind of what he does. He goes, oh, I mean, unless you people see signs and wonders, you never will believe. That's what he, it's kind of harsh. I mean, the guy's kid's dying. This is his little boy, right? And that's what he says. I mean, at first pass, I'm going, man, Jesus, easy. I mean, he just wants his kid to live. I'd do anything. Wouldn't you do anything? You heard somebody can do something about this? Are you going to seek out, I mean, the best you could? This guy's got a reputation. You've seen some stuff happen. Kids dying and you love them like crazy, what would you do? It doesn't say he has the kind of belief like anybody else, but that's what Jesus says. Sounds kind of harsh at first, right? You're sign seekers, you're wonder worshipers. You say belief, but your belief, you know, like these folks in Jerusalem in John chapter 2, like his brothers in John chapter 7, it's not real belief that honors me. We can call it belief, but it's not the kind that unites you to me as one who sees me and loves me as the son of God, full of grace and truth. That's not the kind of belief it is. In fact, it dishonors me. So verse 48 is the most emphatic indictment of all. Along with verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own uh, hometown or his own country. But now what about this guy? What about this official, right? Was he in that crowd who believed but didn't believe, a lover of Jesus' power, but not a lover of his person. I mean, I'm not exactly sure at this point. I'm, kind of, I'm trying to figure it out just like anybody else. Watch what happens. I think there's a test going on. I think Jesus tests him. The official's asking for a miracle for his dying son in a local atmosphere where people love to see miracles, no doubt. And he seems to be asking for the same reason any unbelieving person would love to see a miracle. I have a health need. Would you fix it? And before you get all like up, uptight about it, I think you've got to be careful because, I mean, this is perfectly like just the people you and I interact with all the time. I mean, we want, I have people come to me all the time. I got this health issue, I've had a person in my life who has a health issue, and we really know that God has his power to do stuff, would you pray, right? People do this all the time. It's fine. It's acceptable. Be careful here. But I think it's, you, you got to point out he's not like, hey, I got sin in my life. Would you forgive it and give me power to live for you? 
unbeliever, people who don't believe in God or in, in Christ, they, they don't love God. So why are you, be careful about expecting them to love God, all right? They use God. It's okay. Uh, that's what's happening here. So Jesus bluntly says to the guy, it says that Jesus says to him in verse 48, that he and the other Galileans are attracted to signs and wonders. So Jesus says, unless you people, you know, see signs and wonders, you're never going to believe. I think it's a test. Like the time with a uh, Syrophoenician woman pleaded for help for her daughter, same kind of thing. And Jesus first, he rebuffed her, but it turned out to be a test in Mark chapter 7, right? How does the official respond to Jesus' rebuff? His matter of fact kind of, hey, are you like everybody else kind of thing is sort of what I think is going on here. He doesn't even comment on it. He simply repeats his request. Look at verse 49. Watch this. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my child dies. Jesus told him, go home. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. Now, this is astonishing. Jesus says, still in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and set off for home. What is remarkable, remarkable about this is that the man had asked Jesus to come with him. But when Jesus spoke, go home, your son will live, the man obeyed without a question. He believed and he went. He didn't insist on seeing the miracle. Did you catch that? He didn't complain that Jesus wouldn't come with him. And amazingly, he just left. John says, believing, and I think that in that moment of seeing Jesus speak so sovereignly in spite of his accusations, something woke this guy up, right? And he saw something more than just a miracle worker. And here's the reason, here's a, just a simple little lesson for you and I. If people around us who don't believe and don't love God, all right, are going to believe I think they have to see something. They have to see past your stuff. They have to see past you. They have to see the, the work and the transformation, the authenticity in your life. When people can get to that, when, they, when, when people go, you know, I can't quite get, put my finger on it, but there is something about you that I want, that I need. I want what you've got, and I can't quite explain it. That's when they're seeing, actually, the real Jesus in your life, that authenticity authenticity and that sovereignty of God. You see, that's what's happening right here. There, he's, He gets a glimpse in him and he gets to peer through all the miracles and the signs and the wonder and the stuff to actually Jesus, right? Oh, I think it's amazing. Something more. And here, here's the thing. The next day, we get the confirmation of the healing at the very hour when Jesus spoke the day before, right? And the confirmation reestablishes the man's faith and his whole household believes. That's how powerful it is. His whole power, uh, household believes. The, the transformation in him transforms everybody around him as well. Now, there's this weird thing that's going on at the same time. There's a connection to Herod, and I want you to see that next, all right? Because this is more 
astonishing, I think. Was his faith the, uh, um, the signs and wonders kind? It, it, it doesn't seem like it, all right, this, this royal official. He seems to have passed the test. And who he is, the word royal official in verse 46 and in verse 49 is literally royal one, okay? It means connected to a king in some way. That's what it means. That's why he's pointing this out. The king-like figure over Galilee is Herod Antipas. He was a really wicked guy, awful, terrible, wicked person. He had married his brother's wife and put John the Baptist to death. That story, you know, that ugliness, that wicked stuff. Calling this man a royal one or a royal official, John makes a connection with this court and this ugliness and this stuff and all these things. So it seems John's point is, yes, this guy believed. Is there anybody that you know that you're connected to or that you know about and you're just like, man, they're not that guy. There's no way. I mean, there's so, it's such awful things going on. You're just like, nope. I mean, God can do anything. But uh, you got people in your life like that. Look at this. I mean, look what John is saying. Look what Jesus is doing. I mean, seriously, this guy's bad. Yes, this man believed. He's more like the Samaritans than the hometown people who Jesus criticizes as seeking signs and wonders. <laughs> the church people, hometown people, his family. Oh, my gosh. So stepping back, what's the main thing? point here? I mean, look at all this stuff. Connect all these things together a minute. What's the main point of the text? What, what's, what's John doing here? What's he trying to feature? What, he's doing the same thing he's been doing, by the way, over and over again. It's not rocket science, if you've been paying attention. The main thing he's doing is showing us the greatness of Christ by this astonishing miracle. He's using this miracle, but as a part of that, John wants us he wants to help us overcome the obstacles to seeing the glory of Christ in the text, right? And the way he does this is by showing the kinds of things that keep people from honoring Christ and keep people from seeing Jesus, all right? So look at the two things that, that relate to us. First, the kinds of things that keep us from seeing and savoring who Christ is, not just his signs and and the, and the miracles that he can do and did and what, uh, what it tells us about him. What keeps us from seeing Jesus? Verse 42 tells us what stood in the way of a true understanding of Christ and a, and a saving belief in him. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown, his own country. There's something about being a part of Jesus's home that hinders their faith. And none of us are necessarily part of his hometown. So you, you might think that this doesn't apply, but the inner sinful impulse that made it hard for his own people to receive him and honor him, those same impulses can be in us. What are some of them? I think pride of attachment to someone special sometimes. A kind of vicarious sense of importance. The people could say that this great miracle worker grew up in their, in his, in the, in their hometown. 
This makes them want to, they, they want him to do miracles. So they honor him in that way. But why do they want him to do these things? Because the more he does, the more their attachment feeds their kind of ego kind of stuff going on. That's what's happening. They don't see the humble service of Jesus. They don't feel the need for his grace. They use him. His power and fame feeds their pride. And so they don't honor him for who he is, even though they think they are. This impulse, I think it's alive in all of us today. And it can infect us and keep us from knowing Jesus the way he really is. We can be attached to church things, movements, musical styles, a person. And it just starts to feed things and covers us up. And it, and it seems justifiable because it's Christian, right? And slowly we, we begin to want this thing to thrive, not for the glory of Jesus, but because it, it feeds our ego. And then what happens? It becomes harder and harder to see Jesus for who he really is and the one who saves us by grace alone who calls us to be a humble servant. I think it, I think it happens to us all the, way, all the time. I think there's a sense of entitlement. That's what happens next. This, this impulse. Since, you know, he, he's from our town. We get first dibs or at least special dibs. Right? It creeps into our souls. If you ever start feeling entitled in yourself to the blessings of Christ. You're falling away from grace. You're falling far from, you're drifting from grace. A sense of deservedness or entitledness keeps us from really knowing Jesus. We don't honor him for who he is and we slip into this mindset really easy. I think it's easy to slip in this mindset. Over familiarity with Jesus, this might be an easier one to connect. That's how devious and subtle sin is. A sense of over familiarity with Jesus. I mean, man, there's a lot of resource we do a lot. The church has come a long way in terms of preaching and teaching. And, and, and so this man is one of us. We know his mother and his brothers. He's always been so ordinary. But, you know, how can he be what he claims to be? We just get so familiar with Jesus. It's not that big a deal anymore. That same mindset can be in us. We're so familiar with the Bible, maybe with Jesus, with the church, with the things of church, it can't shock us anymore. He can't do anything mind-blowing anymore. He's too familiar. And, you know, sometimes I go, gosh, I, I think it is miraculous when you see somebody's transformation and you hear their story at the baptistry, but we can kind of blow by like, oh, I've seen that before, you know. It's just kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, well, I, there'll be another one. I got to get to some stuff, right? I, the, that, that is over familiarity. What does the miracle here tell us about Jesus? Well, I think it really tells us about Jesus is gracious. Think about this. 
he heals the child in a very unbelieving atmosphere. I think it would be easy to go, these people did not deserve any of this to happen. The first thing he says to the official when he pleads for his son is, unless you see the signs and wonders, you're, you're not going to believe. He, he, he doesn't commend the guy or the people around him. He is provoked at the sign-seeking false faith that is just flourishing in Galilee. And in that context, he gives the free gift of healing anyway. <laughs> and he gives a gift to this man he's never met and, and whose attachment is in some way probably with the court of wicked Herod, really bad guy who says nothing about the person and the power of Jesus. He just wants him to come. He just wants him to become a worshiper in spirit and truth, right? And I think sometimes we can just get in this place to where we just feel like these people don't deserve this, right? Jesus could have been so easily like that. In other words, when Jesus decided to heal this little boy, it was all grace. He's not looking at anyone's merit or if they deserved it. It was free. It's a gracious gift. Man, I need to listen to that, right? If you have the pride of attachment or the sense of entitlement, you're not going to be able to see this. And you're not going to help anybody else see it. Jesus is gracious and Jesus is powerful. John wants us to see the grace of this healing, but the power of it. The boy is dying. Uh, he's dying. The power of Jesus to heal is seen in the fact that he did it with one word, right? He, he just said, go. One word, go. Your son's going to live. And at that one word, the, the, the physical chemistry of a boy's body is changed. The Power is seen in the distance. That didn't hinder Jesus. Easily 15 miles. You could, you could stretch it to maybe 20 miles away, Capernaum, right? He could have been 15,000 miles away. It wouldn't have mattered. When Jesus speaks with authority, there's no limitations to his power. That's why we have to allow Jesus to speak with authority through our lives and not get in the way. And all this junk that gets in the way, and I think that's part of John's point. So much stuff covers, covers it up that people can't really see this authentic Jesus, right? They can't see his glory. Oh, he is so powerful. The Father knew, right? It's confirmed, right? He, 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 John draws special attention. To, it says in verse 52 that he, he, he recovered, right, at the 1 p.m. the day before. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, go, your son's going to live. At that very moment, Jesus spoke. It was done. That's the, that, I think that's this, really the main feature here. Again, John wants us to see the glory of who Jesus is. And I think the point is with the follower of Jesus now is that's what our mission is, to help people see the glory of Jesus in our own lives. Dying boy is healed with a word over distance. That's the power of Jesus. That's the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. Pray with me, Lord God. I'm praying that you would remove all of our pride, all of our entitlement, 
all of our blinding familiarity and reveal to us this amazing grace and power of your son, Christ Jesus, so that we can live in a way to where everybody can see that and not us. Help us to be that kind of church, those kinds of followers of your son, Jesus. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information, or would like to view the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com and follow us on social media.